Welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. Excited to let you know that you can now pre-order my new book, You Can Change Other People, The Four Steps to Help Employees, Colleagues, Even Family Up Their Game. I wrote it with Peter Bregman, who is my coach teacher, my coaching mentor, and it's now available for pre-order. And when you pre-order, you get a whole bunch of fun, valuable bonuses, including three recorded demo conversations where we show you exactly how to go through the four steps with real people and a one page cheat sheet so you can follow along. The book itself, when you pre-order, will arrive in your mailbox or inbox on September 22nd, 2021. Here's how to do it. Go to plantyourself.com slash pre. That's just P-R-E, all lowercase. That will forward you to the page on the Bregman Partners website that has all the information about how to pre-order. Basically, you just order somewhere, either online or at your local independent bookshop, and you send us the receipt via email, and then you get your bonuses. So I'm really hoping that you will help me make this book, make this book, make this book a big success. I hope it will. You will find it very valuable, and that once you get it and read it, you'll use it and recommend it to others. And so if you've been listening to this podcast for a while and you have gotten value, this is a, a really easy way for you to give back. It would be a huge help. So again, that's plantyourself.com slash pre, P-R-E, all lowercase. All right, let's get to today's show. Today, my guests and I are talking about marriage in particular, and relationships in general. And boy, did we have a fun conversation, went into a lot of depth, a lot of breadth. And it was fun to spend some time with a couple who have been together for a quarter century, and obviously still really enjoy each other. So my guests are Anna Gabriel Mann and John David Mann. We were introduced by our co-publisher, Ben Bella Books, uh, the company with whom Colin Campbell and I produced Hole and the Low Carb Fraud, and where the mans, or the men, <laughs> no, it's the mans, two ends, um, produced The Go-Giver Marriage, a little story about the five secrets to lasting love. And I think you'll really enjoy the conversation, especially if you are in a relationship or thinking about being in a relationship or hoping to get into a relationship and stay in it and make it worth everybody's while. So here we go. Anna Gabriel Mann and John David Mann, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you. Great so, to be here. Yeah, so we're talking about your new book, The Go-Giver Marriage, a little story about the five secrets to lasting love. So I'm imagining, you know, very few of my listeners care about love or marriage or lasting love. So this will be a very niche conversation, right? Just, <laughs> I mean, this is like- Two look, people out there listening, right? <laughs> right. Like this is this is such a globally important book. And as you mentioned in the book, it's not just for- marriages, but kind of committed relationships. And, you know, I would go farther to say it's it's a guide to how to be a human being in a world with other human beings. So I, I first of all, want to thank you for taking the time to write it. Oh, our pleasure. Really. We've been wanting to do this for, for decades. So. Yeah, this book has been in its seed form for two decades. And we're thrilled because it really does apply to all relationships. It's an incredible book for parents, for you know, your business colleagues for, you know, your siblings, your parents. I mean, the five secrets apply globally to what adults need. And it's applicable everywhere. And also to marriages. 
<laughs> yeah. And one of the things I really appreciate the, in the book is, which I thought is quite different from a lot of other books on sort of sort of popular psychology, is you really go into like the theoretical underpinnings in terms of um, developmental psychology. So it, it, it kind of lends, you know, because you could pick five secrets out of the air, right, and say like, hey, let's use these. And I'm sure there's plenty of other quote, secrets that you didn't include because you're creating a framework for understanding. Yes. But you do kind of lay out, and I guess, Anna, this is your background um, as a therapist, um, the the kind of, you know, how hum what human beings need from the very first days of life and how those needs never go away. And like wanting them filled doesn't make us, you know, immature or needy, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You can never be too needy. The question is, can the need be met, you know, or is the other partner willing to meet that need? Because we're all at our core, there's a great deal of insecurity in the world. You know, part of the thing that drives people in business and in life is the desire to accomplish and to be seen, understood and witnessed. It's such a powerful drive. And those needs never go away. You know, from the time that you're a baby laying on a blanket and somebody above you is Googling over you and blowing kisses on your belly, you know, that's a baby in their, in their element, you know, getting witnessed by somebody who genuinely loves and adores them. Um, those needs remain. All right. And, and I guess one, one of the corollaries is that the way we go about getting those needs met as babies has to change as we mature and the, and the way those needs end up uh, manifesting in our lives has to change. But there's ways in which I think we can get stuck and right, relying on strategies that are, that are no longer appropriate. That is the ultimate mouthful right there, <laughs> Howie, because nobody escapes childhood without wounds. Mm. And, you know, you may have been, adored as an infant, but by the time you were a young man or a young girl, um, you may have had a parent who was very critical. You may have had a parent that was depressed. You may have had a parent who drank too much. Um, and whatever behaviors you learned in order to adapt to all of that and to actually get into adulthood, you carry with you. And those behaviors don't necessarily serve you when you get into a relationship, but you may still be in that operational mode. Mm. So before, before we get into the book itself, I'm really curious about any couple who would dare to write a book on marriage, because it, it, feels, <laughs> it feels like a very perilous thing. <laughs> right? Like I, I just wrote a book with a colleague of mine, which, which was about applying coaching principles to everyday conversations. And we... I'm not crazy about the title, honestly. It was called You Can Change Other People, How to Help <laughs> Colleagues, Friends, Even Family Up Their Game. And I got to say, my family's kind of pissed off at the, at the title. And it's it's kind of cut my feet out a little bit in terms of like, are you using that book shit on me? Right? Like, so, <laughs> so John, I, I want to start with you. Um, and I, I I don't know if you guys are comfortable talking about your own marriage. Um, oh, yeah. I, I didn't... What? Us? Yeah. <laughs> you mean we're supposed to know this stuff? Yeah. Well, like you're, you're, you're the amateur here, right? You've, co you've come in. Yeah. Um, so what, like, what is, like, can you talk about your own um, sort of 
you know, marriage autobiography? Like, what did you come in thinking marriage was and what yes. what have you learned along the way from from life and from Anna? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, and, and you're right. I am the amateur in the sense that Anna is, is an actual uh, therapist, an actual, you know, trained person with a degree and everything. I, I just play one on TV. But, um, but I, what I'll say is that my, my years, I spent, uh, many of my years as an author. I, I published over 30 books and many of those were nonfiction in the area of business, leadership, personal development. That's kind of been my wheelhouse, um, uh, un, until lately. And it's interesting. We were talking about this a bit before we hit record that, 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 the human issues that arise in the areas of leadership and business or in the areas of, of, you know, accomplishment and success in the business world really bleed over into, into our personal lives and vice versa. So a lot of the same issues come up. So even though I haven't been in the field of marriage therapy, I've been in the field of working with human beings in relationships and whether they're functional or not, you know, for, for, for decades. Um, my own marriage background is this is not my first marriage. I was married before, and uh, it, it's. I think it's kind of like having had a business failure and then turning around and becoming a business success. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Gives you interesting perspective on and having lived through some of the, the things that don't work so well, or lived through some of the challenges, you know that that you know that didn't resolve, and learning from those mistakes or those situations. Um, I think it's a beautiful thing. I think it's a powerful thing. Um, when we first fell in love, when we first came together, and um, we, we were first business colleagues, actually. We were first became extraordinarily good friends and, and a very uh, a platonic intellectual plane. And it was only over time we suddenly went, holy cow, something else is going on here. Uh-huh. <laughs> and when we, once, we, once we fell in love and we were, we were a couple, um, I wanted to rush to get married. I wanted to get married immediately. And Anna said, you know, I, I think we should take some time. What she was really saying was, I think you should take some time. <laughs> anyway, uh, she was absolutely right. Um, be, I, I needed to sort some things out. And it was only after we'd been together for several years. It was 10 years, Howie, before we actually got married. And during those 10 years, I came to realize that I, I had doubts about whether I was marrying material. I, hmm. I kind of felt like I needed to learn this whole marriage thing from the ground up. Um, so it's it's something I've been I've been looking at from that perspective as well. By the time we got married, we were just so insanely solid as a couple. We were like an oak tree with roots that go down to the core of the earth, you know. Um, and I'm just this is my best friend, best companion, you know, love of my life. We're just so insanely happy that for years, friends would say, "What's your guys' secret sauce? Like, what's up with you guys?" And it's it's it isn't like we had all uh, rainbows and unicorns. We've we've lived through difficulties, tragedies, and circumstances that were extraordinarily difficult together. So we've had our bumps um, in in our life, but everything we go through seems to just make us stronger. And for me, not having honest clinical background, my motivation in this book was honestly I wanted to share our experience, kind of codify it in a in a framework that people could could grasp. And take away and use themselves. I want people to have what we have mm. <laughs> and, 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 and have that in a way that helps to resolve whatever issues are holding them back from all the happiness and joy that they really could be experiencing. And, and I wanted to 
I wanted to actually simplify a cognitive behavioral approach, something that helps people to understand that neurologically you change a bad habit by replacing it with a good habit. Hmm. And in the, in the business world, people talk about mindset all the time, but in the personal and relational world, people do not talk about mindset. Um, they're more analytical and less cognitive, less behavioral, less holistic, if you will. I think that there's a great many so-called techniques for, uh, you know, gaining the skills, if you will, to uh, do better in marriage. But I think skills-based training doesn't always work. I think that it's much more about changing your mindset, changing your behavior. And when that happens, people actually develop new memories. They create new, you know, intimacy and closeness as a couple because instead of shutting doors, which negative behaviors really do, they, they cause people to pull, pull away from each other and they break down intimacy and closeness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that our goal with the book was to simplify and codify uh-huh. so that people could really go, oh, okay, it's, it's a practice. Love is a practice. Mm. It's not an event. It's not a static feeling that you fall in love and there you are. You know, uh-huh. it's not like that. Gotcha. So Anna, I'm, I'm curious to get your side of the, you know, the meeting story. And what comes to me is like, you see someone who has, you know, licking his wounds from a previous marriage. What makes you say, ah, here's someone who's been tenderized and learned lessons versus, <laughs> oh, here's a red flag. Here's a guy, here's a guy who just failed at the thing that I would want to succeed at. Like, what did, what did you see that gave you confidence, hope, or optimism? I'll tell you, John is um, not only a reader, but he's a, he's somebody who learns from his experiences. He's reflective. He has a good sense of, of not just personal identity, but personal understanding. Um, And even though I think that he felt emotionally, he was ready to dive in, but eventually sort of slowed down and, and really looked at why had he, why had his marriage failed and what was going on under the surface for him? Um, I think that he, he just was always willing to learn. I remember him reading different books on, on men, on, on marriage, on, you know, just really examining the landscape, if you will, to understand better what it is that he wanted in a relationship. And I also feel like we had a friendship first. And, you know, I always encourage couples when they're falling in love, wait, you know, like really develop the friendship, really get beyond that romantic bliss so that you can sort of see how the other person ticks and understand whether or not you're compatible at at the deeper levels of relationship. Mm. Um, And John has such a capacity for relationship. He's... He's very strong in friendships as well as in his direct interactions um, with people in his world. Um, So I really feel like, you know, I kind of knew, but I also wanted us to go slowly. And I kept encouraging him and myself, you know, if there's going to be red flags on the field, discover them before you get married. Mm. Um, So I just feel like 
I don't know. We were both very much in love. I, I don't think anything could have really dampened it. Gotcha. So um, you mentioned like thinking about like what 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 you want out of marriage, and there is a uh, a series of a couple of chapters in which that question is posed as a cliffhanger, right? Because so this isn't this isn't a you know a how to book about marriage. This is a story. Right, that reads that, that is a novel that reads as a story about human beings that then has sidebars and yes. deeper exploration. So this is like you know you get into the people here and you like root for them and you're worried about them and you smack your head at some of the things they do. And so there's yes. this there's this like mystery, you know, um, thriller aspect to the question: What is the purpose of marriage? And yes. I have to say, yes. I, I want to be like really honest about this. Part of me loved the answer, and part of me was uncomfortable with it. Mm, so, interesting. So, can you talk about? And I'll I'll see if we can have a conversation about what I loved and didn't exactly vibe with. Can you talk about like wh what you see as the purpose of marriage, and and why it's you know it's such a secret that people don't get it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'll speak to that for a sec. In that, you know, what we see often with 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 relationships that are in any kind of trouble or any kind of difficulty is that people start out, you know, in love and everything is fantastic. The other person is amazing and you can't spend can't spend enough time with each other and everything is, is just superb. What could possibly go wrong? And then life intervenes, you know, then then reality kind of encroaches the stresses of circumstance of your job, your career, kids, finances, homes, you know, et cetera, et cetera. People have accidents, people get illnesses. And and every one of those storms that buffets you kind of tears at the at the pole of the attraction at the relationship, at the, at the foundation. What we see is that p many people come over time to feel like their relationship itself is a, is a series of compromises. Mm. That in order to stay with this person, you have to give up little pieces of yourself. You have to kind of give in, do things their way instead of my way. Let them, you know, watch the movies they like, not the movies that I like. And, and you know, that we have to grudgingly do these things to make them happy because otherwise they're not happy. And if they're not happy, we're not happy. It starts to feel very tiresome, like this, yeah. this great compromise. Right. And, and, that, and, what, and, and, and that every example of that is kind of like, oh, this, is, this was a red flag that I missed. Like, if, if I had picked really correctly, we would want to watch the same movies. We would want to go on the same vacation spots. We would have the same views about raising the kids. So it, bec it becomes like there's this, this resentment about and regret every time there is this, you know, inevitable, um, you know, individuation. Yeah, but, but to a degree. But, but the truth of it is that the only way that would not be true is if we married ourselves. Because then we'd marry somebody just exactly like me. And there is nobody exactly like me. So no matter who you marry, no matter how well matched you are, there are going to be these differences where there's the give and take kind of feeling. What we wanted to convey, I'll say what I wanted to convey in this story, and, and for those who haven't seen the book, the first half of the book is a story about a, a modern couple, Tom and Tess, who are dealing with their marriage and other marriages. And, and then the second half of the book is Anna really kind of reverse engineering that, breaking that down and making it into practical steps for, for you to follow. But... In the story, what I wanted to show is that marriage is, in the process of giving yourself to the other person, giving yourself to the relationship, investing yourself in the us 
of the relationship and not having it about you, being you versus me, but, but actually investing myself into the relationship itself, that what happens in the long run isn't that I give up pieces myself. It's that I become a bigger person. I actually grow. I actually become a, a larger, richer, deeper, more reflective, more wise, more fulfilled version of myself than I would have been if I'd sat alone in a room getting everything that I wanted just my way. It, it can feel like a compromise. We believe it's the opposite. It's the opportunity, literally, of a lifetime to live a larger life. And, and um, this, the secret to that for us is this understanding that the perspective is not it's about you and me. There's two of us in the room, but there's really three of us in the room. There's you and there's me and there's this us. We picture it as a tree in the story. There's this us, which is like a living, breathing entity. It's like a plant sitting there between us, which is which we both feed, we both nourish. Mm. And the perspective is, at all times, every day, it's never a neutral, stable thing. You're always either feeding the us, nourishing the us, or you're starving it. And if you focus on feeding the us, this tree grows and grows and grows, and it ends up giving us both shade, giving us both fruit, giving us both solace, giving us both support. And we, mm -hmm. we live larger, larger, more joyful lives. Right. So can, can we, um, you know, concretize that with an example? Let's, let's say the issue in which um, a couple is not seeing completely eye to eye is around um, relating to ch a child's misbehavior. Right. And so one parent might want to set more boundaries. The other parent might want to um, you know, sort of therapize and understand more. Some, you know, someone might be blaming the school system. Someone might be blaming themselves. How, like that's that's that can be a very painful conversation on a lot of levels. How does how does that come? How can that conversation turn out to be something other than compromise, but lead to to growth? I don't. Do you want to address that, Anna? Um, you know, it's it's a, it's a tricky question because there's always going to be ways in which you're not alike or not aligned, not on the same page. I think that that it it almost warrants talking about one of the secrets and. The secret that I would want to talk about is the third secret, which is called the secret of allow, to allow. Mm. And to allow is to really allow your, your spouse or your partner to be their own individual self with their own viewpoint and their own opinions that don't agree with yours. Um, because when you allow, you're really in a very individuated place. You know, you are you and you have this viewpoint and they have that viewpoint. And the other thing about allow is that it isn't about trying to control the other person or the other person's viewpoint. The opposite of allow is control. Mm. And I think that sometimes when we're in those discussions that feel difficult, there is actually common ground. But one person is holding on so fiercely to control that they want to be right it's not about a discussion. Mm. It's not about understanding and mutuality. It's just about I'm right and you're wrong. We need to punish this child because of this and this and this, you know, 
I was, I got spanked and it was okay with me. You know, I mean, it, it yeah. isn't, it isn't that black and white. There's two, there's two perspectives. And, you know, if you're, if you're both willing to allow for the other person's viewpoint, then the conversation can happen where you can discuss it without it being reactive and without it becoming heated um, in a way that's impossible to figure out. Can I, can I make, can I make this yeah. really concrete for a sec? So let me take what Donna just said and give you, give you how, uh, take the child out of the picture for a moment, give you an example, you know, for, for us. So we're writing this book together, right? And, you know, we've had a lot of people ask us, so did you fight when you wrote this book? I mean, is it like hanging wallpaper? Did you almost get divorced over writing the book? And, you know, no, we didn't fight over the book. But, but, but this is my area. You know, you talk about raising kids. Well, books are my, are like my kids. I, I am, I have a lot of, you could almost say control issues, but really they're, they're I, 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 oh, you could say control issues. Let's I'm, say quality control I, issues. Yeah, yeah, quality control. I, yes. I have a really high standard around the editorial aspect of, of books. You know, so there's the creative side of actually writing a book. But then once a book is drafted, then there's the issue of, of refining it, editing it and, and tweaking it and making it as perfect as you can before it goes to the printer. And one of the hardest moments for me in, in the life of a writer is when an editor is when my editor comes back with comments on my first draft because the editor will come back and, and say, you know, I love the book. Great ideas. Right here, I think I think this doesn't work. And I got to tell you how here I am, thirty books published, right? Knife to the heart. Doesn't matter how many times I've done this; it's a knife to the heart every time. And my my immediate response, and I'm I'm not exaggerating or kidding. My immediate response is no, no, you're wrong. That's not true. You're absolutely. I mean, I I love you and I respect you, but you're wrong. The way I wrote this is the is the best way it could be. This is the way it should stay. And it's evolved to the point now where when I get the editorial comments, uh, my reaction will be, uh, no, you're wrong. I know intellectually that you're probably right, but I can't see it right now. So I'm going to have to like go away for five days. Mm. Don't expect any response from me for five days. And, and I have to just like sit with it. And eventually I come around and what I discover is that <laughs> I, just, I suck my thumb. Exactly. I got to suck my thumb for a couple of days and hold my, hold, hold my, 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 my banking and, um, and, and, and have a bottle for a while. And then I come around, every one of us has a, has a, has a little kid inside. I come around fine to, to the point where I can see that not only could she be right as editor, but that she's going to her implementing her suggestion will make my book better. Mm -hmm. And that's always the moment of great discovery and great humility. The same thing happens with this, this putative discussion you described around, around the proper disciplining of our child. Anna will have ideas. And in our book, Anna had ideas for this book. She would write passages and I would go like, well, she said this in a way that I wouldn't have said it. And I would go, but, but wow, the way she said it is, is like better. It works for this book. It was a process for me to kind of let her in. We've never written a book together before. Mm. To let her into my book is how I how it felt to me, and let her be part of the creation process, and relax with that, and have it not just be that I'm letting her in, the compromise, but that actually it's a better book as a result. That's the bigger life. And that's what we find. Whenever I disagree with her, I find that if I just go through the third secret of allow – and allow the conversation to take place as possibilities, she's going to have some point of wisdom that I didn't have on my own, I wouldn't have had on my own, and that I can learn from and grow from. And she's, she's right about something, you know, and, and, I, and we, can, we can benefit from that.
And, and if I may add to that, um, you know, the first, the first portion of the book, the story, the parable is very whimsical. I mean, it's very beautiful. There's an actual fairy tale within the story. Yeah. And it's so whimsical that one of my fears was that the actual points of the book, the actual secrets wouldn't be understood by the reader. And so when I started writing the second half of the book, um, which really this book divides 50-50, John did the, begin the, for the first half and I did the second half. And I, I really wanted, and I made this clear to John, I really want the reader to understand what the psychological underpinnings are and why the secrets have power so that they can decide, okay, this really does matter to somebody. I, I can bring this into the relationship and I can, and these are the reasons why I need to bring it in. So I, I wanted to appeal to the analytical side of people, to the part that we're like, oh yeah, charming parable, but how do I put this to work? Um, and John at first was like, uh, you know, I'd write a whole chapter on a secret and he'd be like, wow, I never thought about it that way. And so we really, you know, there were real conversations. In the end, he not only loved what I brought, what I added in, I think he really did feel that it made the book richer. Um, but, you know, initially he was like, wait, 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 you know, I mean, we really were like, you know, no, we need to handle our child differently. Mm. Uh, that's right. I, I think we'd ha yeah, exactly handle our child differently. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hearing a few things that I want to kind of throw out for, for your reflections. One is especially um, John's story about, you know, some thumb sucking uh, when you hear that <laughs> feedback that feels like, you know, either a knife to the heart in terms of like, you're a terrible writer or you don't, you're not good at this or, or wanting to. Your ideas are no good. Yeah. yeah or wanting to you know, defend this child of yours. Um, the, the first allowing wasn't allowing the other person to be, but allowing yourself to be that, you know, that it's hard, you know, that if I'm going to, in whatever situation to allow the other person to be who they are, I have to be willing to sit with and accept as passengers on my own experience, feelings of shame feelings of yes. anger, feeling like all the messy stuff. Like if I'm not willing to kind of accept and process that in myself, then whatever Beautiful. I do to the, for the other person is going to be a simulacrum of, of empathy and connection as opposed yes. to the real thing. That's so brilliantly said. It, it, you have to be open to what is your own internal experience. Have, that's like a, a conversation of emotional intelligence and emotional maturity. Yeah, I think it's, Anna, go and, ahead. And well, I would just say that in one of the other secrets, one of the one of the powerful aspects of that secret is being aware, mm -hmm. getting getting your awareness really tweaked to the place where you're paying attention in a different at a different level, not only to what's going on with your partner, but it's what is going on internally. So I think you speak to that really beautifully because the journey ultimately is about self-awareness, because when yes. you gain a greater self-awareness, you're deeply more capable in relationship. There's also something interesting that happens, which is that, you know, Anna spoke a little bit to the thing of nobody escapes childhood without some wounds. We, we each have these past experiences. They could be from childhood. They could be from our recent adult experience, you know, our teenage years. But they're, from, you know, from moments before now. 
we have these formative experiences that that send us off in certain directions and we seem to have this uncanny capacity uh like radar to to zoom in on the person we're going to relate with we have a relationship with who is perfectly picked to push the very buttons we need to have pushed or want to have pushed mm-hmm. <laughs> the, or, or say it differently the perfect person to present the opportunity for us to to step into unresolved issues or open unopened doors in ourselves and develop ourselves. Um, the, the partner is not a sparring partner as much as a, an, a the perfectly chosen agent of change for ourselves to allow us to to uh, to do that introspection. You're talking. Yeah, it's about. like it's like if we if, if if we use the metaphor of like choosing a class in college. And you choose a class yeah. that you can get A's on all the tests. You can score hundreds on all the tests without studying. And you go, oh, yes. I picked the right class. <laughs> right. Yeah. So where'd you go with that? Yeah. And, and for your listeners, if you really want to get a deeper understanding of that, you know, um, Harville Hendricks and Helen Kelly Hunt really mm-hmm. developed an entire theory of how we match up with people who will plug us into our issues from our history in our childhood. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's very powerful. If you can gain awareness about those things, um, you certainly definitely have an advantage in, in being a, a stronger partner in a marriage because it gives you a real leg up, if you will, in terms of being able to process things differently, being able to self-assess and understand and be have a much more compassionate self yeah, well, for your partner. When you talk about mindset, I mean, that's a core mindset about life that, oh, here's an opportunity rather than here I am being victimized. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Very true. Yeah. So, so let me share what was a little bit uncomfortable for me about and so I don't, I don't know that we named sort of the, the purpose of marriage in a sentence but it, there, I, I was looking I was trying to sneak the the page I didn't write it down but basically it's the, the the purpose of marriage is sort of to help you become the person you are meant to become right would, would you would you say that yeah sort of? the way the way the way the way he says in the book is the purpose of marriage is to you know at first when the when the, the fellow Tom is kind of chewing on this problem he comes he says things that you'd think that somebody would say like you know companionship and give a good home for for our kids and and you know it, these are all things that are all that are all great but Jeremiah the old man that he's talking with says ultimately that in his view the purpose of marriage is to give yourself to another human being give yourself to another and in the process become your best self. So it's really a, it's a do, I can't wait to find out what's, go ahead, what, uh, Howie, what's, where's the, what's the, what's the, the, uh, the splinter in that for you? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I view, I look at a lot of psychology from, like, as coming out of a Western, individuated, capitalist perspective, and I've, and I've done a lot of reading and study around indigenous perspectives, which have a critique of our society that I think is quite trenchant because our society, as we look around, we're like destroying the planet. We have more material wealth and and prosperity than anyone could have ever imagined throughout human history. And yet it's so poorly shared. Like there's there's so much you know, there's so much going on with our society that I'm, I'm I'm actively looking for critiques that can. And so the so the thing that that kind of stuck with me is this. It feels very individual as opposed to like if this book were written 
by, let's say, you know, Austra indigenous Australian, they would talk, the purpose is to create the person who is going to contribute most to your community. Like it, it, it bec marriage becomes more than just what two individuals can get out of it, but sort of like gathered and nested in a community, not, you know, of, of other humans, but also of all living things. And that's, that's kind of yes. where I, I wanted more. I, I, oh. I, to I totally see that. I totally see that. I yeah, actually man. think that, that that phrase does cover that, though, because to become the be the person you meant your to best be, self. your best, best self, I think our best selves are always in the service of the larger whole. And I think that when you really have the kind of connection, see, the thing is, is we're all relational. And, and relational expands from person to person to family, to the community, and to the globe, and to nature. To nature, I mean, we, you know, we are not separate from trees, and, and yeah. you know, there's the, the ecosystem is whole. So I'm actually very much a believer in the Aboriginal view. Um, but I'll, I'll just give you a quick example, and that is in, in that, in that, Example in the book of Jeremiah and Tom, what, what, what Tom said, when, when Tom finally comes to the place, I don't want to give spoilers of the book, but I'll just say, when Tom finally comes to this place of, of you know, what is, his, what is his biggest self? What does he really always want to do? What is his big ultimate dream? He, he tells his wife, I've always wanted to build a cathedral. And so the, his building the cathedral. It's not Tom, though. It, it's the, the, the I'm sorry, it's not fairy Tom. Fairytale inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not Tom. Yeah. Sorry, it's, it's the young man. It's the young man fairy tale. I get them confused sometimes. They're, <laughs> they're alter egos. <laughs> he, he wants to build a cathedral, and of course, she. Well, I won't say what she does, but that you know. So we didn't say this in these words, but what is the cathedral? What what is that? What is the what is the biggest thing he can do? It's it is you know, what's a cathedral for? It's for people to come worship. It's for it's for it's for the expression of the community about the their you know their relationship with the with with what is larger than them um but yeah it, it I, I do think that if you take it further and say so here's the purpose of me in relation to you well what's the purpose of us and the purpose of us is to you know just give ourselves to the world mm. and and be be the best contribution that we can that we can possibly be that's the most fulfilling thing anyway and to make it personal howie you know, John and I have been together for 25 years, but, and, and this book has been a seed for 20, mm. but the marriage is very strong and we are very close. And the closer that we became, the more, the larger the impact we wanted to have out in the world became. Mm -hmm. And part of the impetus of this book for me, and I spent years publishing in psychology circles, you know, you can write about an eating disorder. It goes off in some vague journal and gets read by a bunch of other clinicians and hardly ever gets to real people. Mm -hmm. So if you don't, if you want to make an impact in the world, you have to get out into the mainstream in a bigger way. Um, and so we really not just codified this book, but wanted to make the book be something that would put the concepts into place in a way that was readable, accessible, and powerful and that would have an impact that would ripple across the pond and, and all over the world. We have people contacting us from India, from the EU, from Great Britain, from Australia. We have people that want to come from Australia to study coaching with us. 
it's it already the book came out in March. Already the ripples are broad in terms of the impact. And it's funny because I didn't have the dream of this book when I got married to John. It's it's something that has opened up and evolved. And I really feel like the very statement of giving yourself to another and in the process becoming your best self, this is the level that I've wanted to serve for my whole life. And mm -hmm. I honestly feel like this book may be the catalyst that opens a lot of doors for people to really look at their marriage with new eyes and to recognize that love is a practice. It's not a static feeling. Mm. I love it. I love it. Thank you for, for, for entertaining my, my doubt and, and helping to um, you know, incorporate it. And, and I'll add one more thing. A marriage that just is about, is about joining, you know, giving yourself to another person. It, you know, I was initially uncomfortable with those words because to give yourself to another person can also mean to merge, to lose yourself. Mm to not expand your horizons, to not become your best self. Mm -hmm. And it's what a lot of people in marriages do, Howie. Yeah. They join up and they just really want to agree on everything and be a lot alike. You know? uh -huh. Well, it's as, as if your book was only part one or part two, right? One of you would have lost yourselves. Yes. I just had a realization, John. I'm just, I was just playing back something you said earlier about your editor, yes. and when you said she, in my mind, I had a he editor, so it kind of, it kind of like tickled me a little bit. I realize you're probably talking about <laughs> Leah, Leah Wilson. Uh, I could have been. <laughs> Interesting that you would say that. Um, my experience has been, at least so far, that of all the editors I've worked with, with one exception, uh, they've all been women. So, okay. you know, because I know I, I know we're both Ben Bella authors, but yeah, um, yeah, Leo was. So I, I am, exactly. I am. We, we have we have personnel in common. Yes, I am <laughs> one of the uh, maybe a, a couple dozen people. I don't know how many manuscripts she's worked on, but, you know, I we had a book that was done. It was perfect in. Yeah, yeah. In, I want to say like January <laughs> 2012. And then we got back her edits. It was like another nine months. <laughs> so. That's fun. I love it. You know, I'm going to quickly tell you a story about that because um, I think it's really it's relevant in some way. Um, so here's the book, The Goalgiver Marriage. Right? However, this, which we just wrote this year, uh, comes on the heels of a series of Goalgiver books that go back to this one. This is the original book, The Goalgiver, which came out in 2008, which I wrote with a friend of mine, Bob Berg. And The Goalgiver, like The Goalgiver Marriage, is a, is a story. This is more applicable to business, but really it's a book about human beings. It's about how to how to be a how to be a person in the world how to be a successful person successful meaning not just making money but but successful being fulfilled fully realized um, human being so Bob and I got this book finished in 2005 Anna read the first draft that's when she first came up with the idea and said this would be a great book about marriage mm -hmm. but the book wasn't published in 2005 it was submitted by our agent to publishers in New York. And 16 of them came back and all said no, 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 no. That's 16 no's. And, you know, we took it back and messed with it and worked on it and then took it back to New York. And 12 more publishers said no. And then finally somebody said yes. The moral of the story is not to be persistent. The moral of the story is those first 16 publishers were right. It wasn't ready for publication. 
when we finally submitted it to the last publisher, we had covered every page with the red ink. We'd work with an editor and, and work with our agent. And the book, the, the germ of the book, the uncut diamond of the book was inside. The possibility of it was in there in that original draft, but it was a mess. Mm. There was so much that needed, needed to be burnished away, honed away. And I find that to be true of almost every, you know, of every manuscript um, that, that I've ever produced. And I find that to be true of myself as a human being. You know, there's so much work to do to improve me, refine me, grow me, deepen me. And that, that's what it is that I find that, that a marriage is, aside from being a place of joy and companionship, is able to offer me. It's like it's a, it's a magnificent universal editor to emit me an improved version of myself, a better draft, a publishable draft, perhaps. <laughs> and, and also, Howie, since your book is a coaching model and, and a coaching model that can apply to the people in your life, um, which I find compelling. Yeah. And part of the reason the Go-Giver Marriage is a coaching model is because, you know, we all have our story about life and about marriage and about our spouse, etc. But your story still remains just your story. Um, and if you want to change the story, you have to change yourself. You have to change your behavior and your attitude toward the situation. And that's a coaching model. That's not a therapy model. We're not going to circle the story endlessly. Mm-hmm. We're going to change the way we think about it and the way we behave. Yeah. And that's what really makes such a profound difference. So let me let me offer a little challenge to that, which which is so you know I'm a coach, so again you know, I I try to avoid anything therapeutic, and at the same time, my experience is that it's very easy to 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 read advice and say oh I need to do this, and yet our if you know when you talk about no one gets out of childhood unwounded. Like yes. one, one of the woundings, or many of the woundings end up neurological. And my experience yes. is, is when we are in fight or flight, nothing you write in your book is accessible to me, just biologically because of where the blood is flowing in my brain. And so I'm wondering, like one of the things that really struck me in the book is that, Anna, you say you don't work with couples, you work with individuals. You coach marriage to individuals as opposed to a traditional couples therapy. And like what I was pushing back on that in my mind is if the other person is in fight or flight, I don't know that you can, you have enough power to model enough safety to get the other person to let's say, co-regulate with you on a, on a biological level. And I'm wondering how, how you deal with that. You're, you're saying, okay, you know, here's secret number one, you know, basic, give compliments. And if I, like, that's the easiest thing in the world until I am in fight or flight or fold or some sort of neurological state where I'm not, you know, socially engaged. And then nothing you say is going to matter because I'm just an asshole. Um, that's a really great description of what, you know, being a, so, you know, in your words, an a-hole really (laughs) is about. Um, and yes, that's, that's actually part of secret number three in, in the, in the whole allowing, you have to not only allow for that part of somebody to emerge, 
but you have to have compassion and understanding for it and be able to meet that person without being reactive. That's actually a huge part of the secret. And, and actually, when I say it's a cognitive behavioral model, what I really mean is it's a, 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 neural, a neurological model in that if you don't change the way that you think about something, you can't change it. Um, so if you're going to shift the way you're responding to somebody, you've got to shift your understanding of the way they're being. You can't just be reacting to what they're doing. You have to be willing to see it for what it is in the larger context. Um, you know, it's, it's, you probably would be enlightened by the work of Terry Real because it's what is called relational therapy. And I, I've studied with Terry and the truth is a lot of marriage therapy is about so-called skills. Mm. But when you're in fight or flight, skills are like, so yeah. what? I'm in fight or flight, you know, I'm in reaction. So what you're trying to help people to get to, and, and in some ways that's what allow is about, is you're trying to help people get to the prefrontal cortex. And as a coach, you're loaning your client your prefrontal mm. cortex. That's a, what a beautiful way of saying it. Yeah, you're loaning them your prefrontal cortex because you're helping them to reframe what actually happened. And, and I'll, I'll give you an example. I had a client recently where they are disagreeing about something specific with their children. And one person has a, a vehement I'm right perspective and the other person really believes in their perspective too. They're not quite as blaming or shaming of the other person's viewpoint, but they still are both, you know, off in their corners. And part of the coaching is helping the one who really, really is in that I'm right. You know, I need to be in control here. I feel this is the way it's my way or the highway kind of viewpoint mm -hmm. to look at. And, and, you know, in coaching, you sometimes do have to look at history. Okay, where did you feel out of control once before? You know, where does this out of control feeling originate from? Because when you describe the relationship, you're a victim to the other person's control. So where did you, where and why do you feel so out of control? And can you, can you reframe it so that you can just be with that feeling rather than being so reactive? Mm. So you're trying to help them slow the interaction down enough so that they can both stay calm and they can both stay in a prefrontal cortex versus, and fight or flight is just being in the amygdala. You know, you're in reaction and that's the amygdala in action. It doesn't, and the amygdala is like, forget it. It's just crazy. Um, you know, you're, you're all reaction and you have no compassion. Whereas the prefrontal cortex can look at the situation and say, I see that you're overreacting right now, or I see that you're, this is really a strong reaction for you. You know, can we talk about it? Can it, can it slow down? Can you listen to my viewpoint versus mm -hmm. just attacking? Right. Do you, do you recommend or prescribe, um, activities and exercises to help people you know, not in the moment of conflict or not, not, you know, sort of outside the relationship. I'm thinking like, you know, shooting practice free throws as opposed to in the game. I, I not only do, but I give people direct advice on situations where they're, you know, in this same situation, 
you know, the one partner did something, they wrote an email to somebody and they, and they were sort of trying to resolve a situation in business that had been very difficult. And the other person's perspective was you already know who that person is in business and they're not going to hear you. They're not going to give you what you want. They're not going to give you the feedback you want. So why are you even trying? And, you know, what I shared with them was, okay, you just basically attacked the whole initiative of this person trying to resolve something. And you basically made that person wrong for their approach. Mm. And what would it have been like if you said to them instead, you know, who I see, I see you as strong. I see you as competent. And I see you as not willing to take criticism from somebody who really doesn't care about you. So why would you try to appeal to that person and maybe, you know, get shot down yet again? What I would love to see you do, because I see and experience you as powerful, I would love to see you hold the line and not try to resolve this by pandering to him on email. Mm. And, you know, it, the person kind of perked up in the middle of the session because they were like, ah, you're right, that would be using appreciation to let them know how I feel about them and how I witness them as a powerful person. Because, you know, he admitted that he saw her as very powerful and, and much more whole than this person who had attacked her. Mm. That rem- and she, but she was trying to be diplomatic. And so he was, he was criticizing her very action of how she was trying to handle it rather than acknowledging, look, I see you as way more powerful than this person. Why would you pander? Mm. And, and can I encourage you to hold your ground instead of, instead of groveling? That reminds me of an, of an insight that came to my writing partner and me as we were working on our book. We sort of wrote our way into it in terms of like how to initiate difficult conversations with people that you want to change in some way. And like as a tactic, we said like it's, you know, it's useful to, exp- you know, first of all, to empathize, but then also to express confidence in them. And what we what yes. we came to was like, OK, that's a great technique, but it can also be B.S., and, and the realization was, if you're trying to change them, you are, by definition, confident to some degree. Like, you, if you didn't think they could change, you wouldn't even bother having the conversation. So embedded yeah. in this conversation is my confidence in you. Well, again, let's go back to it being relational as well. This person you're in a conversation with, you know something about them. You have an opinion on who they are. So you have the tools to actually appreciate them in a way that is holistic and authentic. I'm not talking about just blowing smoke and complimenting them. You described the secret of appreciation as passing compliments. Mm. It is much bigger than that. It is not a compliment. A compliment is is shallow. Mm. An authentic appreciation is real. It's measurable. It's something where you're letting them know the way you witness them. And if that's positive, it's very sustaining and very powerful for the yeah. person that's receiving Which it. Which reminds me of the one sentence in the book that has had the biggest positive impact on me and my marriage, which was you argue against the concept that love is blind, right? And you say love, love sees with eagle eyes, like, you know, for the woman who yes. says, oh, you the eyes of an eagle. Right? You keep saying I'm beautiful, but that's only because you're blind because I'm really not. And I love that. <laughs> that like, but you really are. Like, I'm but the one really who are. can see it. Yeah. Yes. It's like every parent thinks that their kid is gorgeous, right? They're all right. Mm-hmm. All of them. 
every couple who thinks that their that their spouse is just the most amazing person, they're not all wrong. They're all right. Mm-hmm. And I see the emotion in your face and I love it because yeah. your wife is multidimensional and beautiful in so many ways. Let me count mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. That's your viewpoint. And so for her to dismiss it is, again, in the awareness of things, it's her insecurity. It's the part yeah. of her that doesn't feel beautiful, you know. And so, yes, love has the eyes of an eagle. Mm-hmm. You see the soft underbelly of the other person. Love that. I love that. So, so um, you mentioned one one of the the sort of mentors in your in your process is John Gottman, right? Who's who's yes. become something of a of a pop star due to um, you know due to um, the, you know pop popularization of his work. I'm wondering, you know, like I've read like you know the Blink and the, like the stuff about thin slicing and like the genius who can you know, the wizard who can predict in 20, you know, whether you're going to get divorced from spending five minutes with you. What, what is it about his work that you have found most meaningful? Well, I really want to start by saying that um, I have been heavily influenced by Harville and Helen. Mm. I have been heavily in- influenced by Terry Reel. And I've also been heavily influenced by Pia Melody. I mean, you know, I, I really delve deeply into a background in trauma. The thing about the Gottman's work is the simplicity of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You know, when you start talking about criticism and contempt and um, stonewalling, these are all, you know, behaviors and tactics that people have in marriages. And so easily recognizable. Yes. They tear marriages apart and when we started codifying the secrets, I had to give um, credit to them because the opposite of appreciation is criticism. The opposite of allow is control. Um, the opposite of believing in someone is contempt. And so when you start really understanding the power of the secrets, you have to really understand the power of the polar opposite of them as well that these are the things that you can fall into. And again, you know, you mentioned earlier a neurological approach. Um, You know, every bad habit is replaced by a good habit that you spend the time to bring in and that you start to really utilize because it will wipe, you know, when you're appreciating your wife and letting her know all the different ways that she's beautiful, um, you know, there's no room for criticism in that that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, and criticism really just sort of moves away. And even when you're authentically appreciating your spouse, their criticism of you moves away as well, because it's pretty hard to criticize somebody who just told you that they deeply appreciate the fact that you're such a good daughter to your parents and that you're, you know, you're just always there taking care of things and helping and, and that you just see them as, you know, really amazing and powerful. And, you know, that, you know, that makes people feel like, well, why would I criticize him, him just because I picked his socks up off the bedroom floor this morning? Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, it seems pretty shallow in the, in the face of that appreciation. Yeah. And it reminds me of sort of, you know, the Pygmalion effect, right, of people live up to <laughs> yeah. perceptions of them. And like, like, like that's that can give each of us so much power. Yes. Right. Like to the, the yeah. like, like it's, I think everybody knows someone who just like walks around seeing the best in other people. 
and like how powerful that is. This is the eyes, eyes of an eagle again. This is the eyes of an eagle again. Yeah. It's the secret to parenting. I mean, it's, it's I was going to say, yes. May yeah. I say to your listeners, if you are a parent, read yeah. this book. Because if you apply these five secrets to your children, your children will soar like eagles. Mm. Yeah. I mean, they will have the skills to not only have amazing relationships, but you will have modeled for them how to be powerful in the world. Mm. So we're coming, we're coming up on the hour, but I do want to ask, you mentioned Terry Real and relational therapy a couple of times, and I just encountered that for the first time a couple of weeks ago. It was actually an article critiquing um, psychedelic-assisted therapy for not including re relational therapy, but kind of treating these psychedelics as the same way we would treat you know, Western drugs, like the person is an atom, is, is an individual, and you pour something in them and they get better. And the article was saying without relational therapy, this is going to be a very shallow, quick fix. So I got interested in it, but I don't know much about it. So what, what can you describe, like, how, how relational therapy plays into the work you do helping people in their marriages? Yes, I would be happy to. First off, I'll say that Terry's really a genius. He's one of the first people who wrote about men and covert depression, which is really in epidemic proportions in the world. You know, a lot of men are depressed, but they, they won't acknowledge it. They don't acknowledge it. Instead, they engage in powerful addictions, whether it be addiction to their computer, addiction to their work, addiction to porn. Um, sex, working, working out, working out too much. What, how have you? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, a million ways to be addicted and, and women conversely have addictions in the same way. Um, Terry really, you know, relational therapy is really an effort for people to understand the us and the prefrontal cortex approach versus the amygdala approach. You know, we, we, we are relational creatures. We live, we grow, and we learn, and we bond in relationship. And it's not all about individuation and separation. It's really about how do we interact? How do we build stronger and stronger containers where the interactions are safe and where they're, they're contained in a way that we can, we can be powerful and we can be very intimate at the same time? So we don't lose ourselves. We actually gain a stronger sense of self, um, which I think is described in that line, you know, to, to join with another and become your best self. Um, so I think that relational therapy helps you to individuate. And at the same time, it helps you to have uh, a global and, and more powerful compassion for your partner and for all the learning and growing that we all do. I think that when people are really in a marriage that embraces a relational perspective, both partners grow to their greatest ability and with great compassion and love for each other's um, places of vulnerability, if you will. Like if you are somebody who experienced incest or experienced a terrible trauma early in your life, um, or if you grew up with a parent who is alcoholic, neglectful, dismissal, um, you know, possibly verbally abusive. I mean, these are all things that people have as background. And so relational therapy says, let's open up to really all of who we became. Mm. You know, if you had a father who was beating you, yelling at you, and, you know, there's so many men in the world that grew up under really abusive fathers, and they don't have the skills 
to be in a relationship in, in terms of really letting their vulnerability show, letting their emotional self come to the surface. And so they become very critical, very intense fathers, very dismissive fathers. And, you know, when they wake up 16 years into the marriage and their kids don't really want to be with them and their wife is pretty unhappy too, it's time for a reckoning to happen. And, and for, you know, so even though my model is not based on digging into deep history in moments when somebody like my client, I was just talking about, he's reacting to his wife from a very early place of feeling out of control. Mm. And he's judging her like crazy. And when he can shift that and move into a more aware prefrontal cortex, again, compassionate place, he can allow her to be powerful and he can give his support to her without diminishing her or or criticizing her. Gotcha. So I want to I end with one question that I'm, I'm not sure if it's going to be useful or something you're going to want to answer, but it was, it was on my mind in terms of, and you, you mentioned in, in the, your discussion of the book and the choices you made that you chose a couple who were like, they weren't, it wasn't like extreme, right. In terms of their dysfunction. And they were also pretty well off. Like they were, you know, just socioeconomically. And there, there are certain buffers and advantages that come to people in relationship when they, when they aren't at sort of the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, and my question is, so you've written a book for individuals to fix relationships or, you know, to grow into relationships. I'm wondering if you'd written like the go-giver marriage policy manual. Like if you were suddenly, you know, made, I don't know, co-heads of health and human services or... Or some, if you had like so, the, the power to make social policy, what sorts of things might you enact to support go-giver marriages? Well, I want to just jump in and say this, which isn't indirectly, it speaks to that, which is, you know, you, you brought the point that the marriage, Tom and Tess, is not in deep trouble. And that was very conscious. There's brewing possibility of trouble there right but it's not it's not at a crisis level that was very intentional and and for me it's really it's similar to a health model you know the, the for me if i were put in in, pol in a pol place of policy around public health the place where i would look is not in disease states but in preventive and in wellness and in the ways that we take care of ourselves or deal with ourselves when we're, when we're not facing a health crisis, because really that's when the car is, when the, when the engine's blowing up, it's a little bit late to start wondering about how to take care of the motor. Same thing with this, you know, it, it's not that we don't want to help people who are in crisis. We absolutely do, but there are so many more people, whose crisis is still down the mm. road, but it's coming yeah. <laughs> because of the way that we live our daily lives. Um, so I just want to address that. But in terms of, of uh, uh, relationship policy, your, op your new office, sweetheart, you have a new uh, your head of national relationship policy. What, what are your recommendations? <laughs> well, actually, one of the reasons that we developed a coaching program and why this is a coaching model is that um, I think that therapy is inaccessible to lots of low-income couples. And I think that um, that there's there's a lot of capacity with this book to actually take on the secrets and take on the work without actually coaching with anyone. 
But I think in, in terms of policy, again, it's preventive. I would want to see um, more education. I mean, we do group trainings and we want our coaches to be doing group trainings because group trainings are inexpensive and they're accessible. And people get a lot out of when, yeah. when the secrets and their opposites get explained in a deep and very constructive manner, people go, Oh, right. I didn't think about it. Yeah, I do criticize, mm. you know, and they use um, it and they use it in a different way. I, I think yeah. education is power. I mean, I'm just a great believer in education. So to me, it isn't about trying to get people into therapy, but when you can create group models and when you can educate, 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 as well as create, I mean, we have teams now of coaches, then coaching can also be accessible, both through groups and also through individual at mm. prices that are not even close to what therapy costs. And I think it makes it real. It makes it, it you know, able to go out into the world and have an impact. Um, Hmm. Right. Yeah, I remember when I started doing group coaching, it was kind of my thinking was, well, it's for people who can't afford the gold standard. And I quickly discovered that in many ways, group coaching was better. I agree. Yeah, yeah because isn't it great? When they start interacting and when you can create, I mean, the beauty of Zoom yes. is you can create individual, you know, one-on-ones back and forth with them and then come back to the group and discuss it. It's mm. so powerful. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. So for folks who are listening and intrigued, let's talk this name, name the book again and, and let people know where they can find you and follow your work and, uh, and get more. The book is the go giver marriage, a little story about the five secrets to lasting love. Our website is go and um, there you can find out all about our coaching, our different programs that we offer. And um, you can also itself. listen. You can get the book. You can order mm -hmm. the book. Mm -hmm. um, you can also order it anywhere online. Um, it's on Audible. It's on, you know, Amazon. Do you guys read you it? Go to get it. We do read it on Audible. Uh -huh. Yes. We are the audio book. Yes. <clears throat> did, you, did you both get to, uh, to voice it? Yeah. yeah, we would go back and forth in the book. And we had, we had a blast doing it. We did it in a local studio. And the big challenge was when you get right to the end of the story, neither one of us can read it without, without getting teary. Uh -huh. And uh, Anna was the one who had to actually deliver the last, the last line of the book. And it was a good thing it wasn't me because I would have been a mess. Uh -huh. <laughs> I had to really shore up. You know, it, it's a, uh, yeah. It, she it had to go like, us... I don't care about this. I do not cry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so gogivermarriage.com. Yes. The book is The Go-Giver Marriage. John David Mann, Anna Gabriel Mann, thank you so much for doing this work and for your willingness to spend the time with me to, uh, to explore it. Thank you, Howie. Thank you for pleasure. the fascinating discussion. Thank you yes. so much. Yeah, really interesting conversation. We're in all, all kinds of alleyways that were just so much fun to go through. Awesome, awesome. Thanks again. All right. What would you think? Was that worth your time? I hope so. If you want the links to some of the therapists and thinkers and researchers we talked about and also links to the man's work and the Go-Giver Marriage book that you can get for yourself, you can find that all at plantyourself.com slash 516. So movement news. There ain't any movement because I have ruptured my left plantar fascia. Uh, last weekend in a Frisbee game. Not sure exactly how that happened or why, but I'm in a boot and on crutches, 
and enjoying a little bit the uh, the different view of life. When people who don't know me see me hobbling about, I I sense a very different uh, approach. So, and I'm also noticing how hard it is for people who have disabilities to do things like use a bathroom in a public place if it's not really specifically designed and set up for that sort of thing. There's just so much that's unnecessarily hard because of design decisions. And until I joined temporarily, I hope the ranks of those who don't have full use of their limbs uh, didn't really occur to me. So that's kind of humbling. I'm hoping for, of course, a uh, speedy recovery. I have been urged to not try to rehab too soon, but to let the uh, the stuff knit together. Been been Googling, and the information on uh, recovering from plantar fascia rupture is much more akin to um, religion than science. There's just not that much great data. So I'm just, uh, you know, listening to my body, but mostly listening to uh, Rafi, who insisted that I get crutches and a boot, and hopefully things will heal and I'll be able to do the the big uh, ultimate tournament in July in uh, in Denver. So I've got a couple of months for that kind of rehab. Garden news, um, we put up bean trellises, which this was before the injury. I can't do much of that right now. And Mia planted a bunch of beans that I've never heard of, including um, like Japanese winged beans and uh, really long beans that look kind of exotic and, and lots of runner beans and pole beans. And um, also the garlic is coming up real nice. And I'm going to, as soon as I can, going to head out in the truck and get a big load of mushroom compost and shore up our beds. So that's what's been going on. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Rickney Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elsbeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chali, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, 
for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.